0: Now, before we begin today's lecture, a couple of things I want to say uh, that I wanted to make sure were on the, uh, on the tape or the CD and on the Internet. Uh, we're not positive of this. We don't really know how to do this. Um, I only know for one day for sure, because I checked it again today. I called somebody and said, I want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to come up here and say something that's not right. But last week's sermon on one day, one day. Uh, And that was really only a half a day because it was put on uh, Monday about noon. So last week's sermon had 947 people listen to it on Monday. That's what's happening out there. And I know that part of that was because of what I said in the beginning. And I've already been, I've had people talk to me about it from everywhere. It's amazing. So before we begin today's lecture, it's probably advisable to address a few things, questions that always arrive when a circumstance such as Dirk's tragic death uh, arises or occurs. Um, This is going to happen to you on Friday. Everybody's going to want to know what the answers are for these questions. And let me state it right out of the gate here, without equivocation, as distinct and as clear and as certain as I can possibly be, our essence... Our being, your being, your personhood, your essence, your consciousness survives the physical death of the body. It survives it. Our mind is a metaphysical entity, a supernatural component. That's what metaphysical means. We exist separated from the physical or the natural. And I've been saying this for a couple of days now, or actually over a week now, just because the machine the physical component dies, the ghost in the machine, our soul spirit does not die with it. Our ghost, our holy spirit, our I'm sorry, our soul spirit, is called the ghost in the machine. I used the example I did the other day when a man called me out of out of Arizona. And wanting to talk to me about it. And I said, uh, you think of ourselves as almost like we're flying a plane. Our body is the plane. But our mind, our consciousness is the pilot. And if the plane crashes or if the plane uh, breaks up in the air, there's an automatic eject button for our being or our essence. And we pop out. That's what happened to Dirk. That's what's going to happen to you. That's what's going to happen to me. Upon death... The body dies, but the spirit soul has an automatic ejection system. Then what happens next if you're saved? Search and rescue comes for you. There's two of them. And they come and get you. Bang. How long you get to watch and see what your wreckage looks like is another. That should be an odd thing to look at. There's my machine. The machine is not you. What does the machine do? What's the purpose of the machine? To allow your mind to express itself. So others can know what your mind is and what you are like. Just because the machine dies, the ghost in the machine, the soul spirit that controls the machine, does not cease to exist. It cannot. All the body is is a physical expression of the spirit. The spirit is immortal. And humans are designed as living souls in concert with a physical manifestation. That might not mean anything to you, but let me say it again. We're designed as spiritual living souls in concert with a physical manifestation so that we can make the invisible visible. Do you see that pattern? You recognize that pattern? I hope you do. That is the pattern that God uses for himself, right? But humans are designed as a blending of the immaterial and the material. The immaterial part is immortal. And what's immortal? What's the definition of immortal? Continuous consciousness, which means you think you exist forever. Continuous consciousness. All of humanity is immortal, by the way. At stake is not our immortality, our continued consciousness. What's at stake is our destination, our final destiny, where you go and why you go there. Now this Friday, many people are going to ask you, they're going to ask me, they're going to ask everybody, anybody they think has a, an answer. They're going to ask this, why is there evil? Why does God permit evil? I get that all the time. Why is there evil? Why does God permit evil? And neither one of those is the real question. What's what I would call the primable or the first question. See, if you ask, why is there evil? Why does God permit evil? You have failed to recognize that you have missed the real question. The question before that. If you understand the question before that question, you would never ask either one of those two questions. See, the question, the the primable question, the one that should come before either one of those two, and again... If you know this one, you never ask the next two. So if you ever find yourself asking why is there evil? Why does God allow evil? What's wrong? You're making a mistake. The primable question is why is there free will? Why has God so designed it this way, with mankind, with you, with me, having free will? Why did God put free will into human beings? Why did he do it? Then, of course, the next logical progression to that, the next question is, is how did man's freedom of will result or result in and necessitate physical death? Because that is why we have physical death, because we have free will. So the question is, is why did God design free will? He could have made us what? Automatons, robots, that's right. Why didn't he do that? Why do you have the ability? I'm going to make a free will decision right now. Watch me. Some would disagree with this, by the way. There's my... I'm going to tell you that God did not make me do that. Did he know that I was going to do it? Okay, now I'm going to have this collision between omniscience and free will. And that's settled in Matthew 4 and Genesis 15. You all know that because you have come here for years and you're sick of me telling you it. But they don't know it. They don't know. They're going to come on Friday and they don't know. So how did man's freedom of will result in physical death and ultimately the second death, which is Revelation twenty fourteen? So all questions on the existence of evil, the cause of death, physical decay, sickness, war, natural disasters, whatever, you pick your, your topic, every one of those has to begin a debate with free will. All first must deal deal with man's free will. The federal headship of Adam, ultimately. And God's design, God's purpose for creating free will beings versus robots. He doesn't want automatons. He doesn't want that. He wants free will beings. And by the way, his omniscience demands something. What? That the way he did it is the only possible way. The only way that it could be done is that we have free will. So all of that's coming into play this Friday. Be ready. When somebody comes up to you and says, how come people died in Indonesia of a flood of a natural disaster, what do you say back? That's not the right question. The right question is, is why does man have free will? And then, how does man's free will result in death and evil? Who else has free will, by the way? Angelic host has free will. Why does the angelic host have free will? How did the angelic host decisions affect us, affect them? What is the second death? Revelation 2014. Okay, here we go. November 7th, lecture discussion number 22 on the book of Romans. And this will end, maybe, I should say maybe, really close As I wrote it, but when I wrote this, I was positive I was going to end. I'm really close to ending if I go through it all. This is going to end today, uh, the diversion into circumcision, which was the defining of circumcision, the investigating, the sign that is circumcision, the symbol of circumcision, the meaning of circumcision. Today we're going to be done with that, I hope, but I doubt it. Really close. We had to do all of that because we ran into circumcision in Romans chapter 2. And next Sunday, we're back to Romans. Back we will go, and hopefully, as I said, we're going to end the Gibeonite saga today. Now, because uh, we're ending, does not mean, mean that we sufficiently covered the material. We didn't. We didn't cover it. To the contrary, there's going to be a whole bunch that we didn't get to, left untouched, unexplored. That's always the case. I cannot, I am not capable of completing a chapter. No human being is, you are not, so don't say to me, well you, you left out this. Yes, the answer is yes, I left this out, whatever this is. You will too. It's an inexhaustible, infinite chapter, just like every chapter in scripture. So we do the best we can and we move on even if we're not ready to move on, because we'll never be ready to move on. It's kind of like, do you, are you ever ready for having kids? No. You're never ready. If you had to wait till you were ready, you'd never have any. Have you seen them? I love that joke where the, the kid told his mother, he said, uh, I didn't ask to be here. And she said, uh, I didn't think it would be you either. So. <laughs> so you're never ready for kids. Lindsay and Eric brought me their two dogs. And Lori left. So I had four dogs while I'm trying to write this lecture. And one of them is a puppy, Lucy. And Lucy is only 30 pounds, but Lucy can produce her weight in poop in a half hour, which which I had to deal with. You're never ready... How does that fit with you're not ready for kids? There you go. You put it, you put it together, didn't you? Okay. If you were here last week, if you listen, or if you listen progressively by CD or on the internet, then you know that we are at Second Samuel 21, and we took and made this list of elements that is there, our famous list system. We break down a passage, I've been doing it for a long time, I break down a passage by listing as many of the key elements that seem to be the most significant, and now I've got this uh, uh, reversible, ultimate, platinum model uh, dry erase board that is so lovely there, and so it works really well. And there's our list. And last week, we, you could see what we circled. And this week, we're going to try to knock off some more of them. Am I going to get them all? No, I'm not. But I'm going to get a lot of them. We're going to take care of no silver and no gold. We're going to take uh, no, kill no man in Israel. Um, we're going to get uh, M again, seven hang. We'll have to go back over that. O, Rizpah. We're going to cover Rizpah a little bit today. Might not finish her. That's the one that I'm worried about. And then the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, the bones of the hanged and the buried. And then, of course, the heed. God answers the prayer. So that's about as many as we can. Now, we've already taken care of bloodthirsty, three-year famine, and zeal. We'll get a little zeal again today. Okay, and I know that we've done this one as well. That popping sound is not my fault. So, pretty much knocked off our list, David and Saul as well. You'll notice as you go through it, you'll realize that we actually did take them on, whether or not I made it obvious. I try not to make it obvious. Hopefully, when you combine this lecture with discussion number 21, you'll be left with enough information that the divine purpose of this actual, historical, literal event will be revealed to you. What really happened here? Not only did it really happen, actual historical, literal people actually did all of these things and said all of these things, but God used it also as a divine teaching purpose. Hopefully that will be revealed to you. At the very least, it will be less dark. Okay, probably prudent to reread some of the Second Samuel 21 again to remind everyone of the issues. So let's take a run at it. We'll go really fast. Second Samuel 21, I'm going to just read 3 through 6 to emphasize those. And uh, 10 through 14. So here we go. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you and with what shall I make atonement? That's a key word, atonement. Big word that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. Those are powerful. Inheritance of the Lord and atonement are always combined. And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver "...or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us." So he said, "...whatever you say, I will do for you." Then they answered the king, "...as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gebeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose." Hey? Now, up to verse 10. Now, Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts by day. Of the field by night, and David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his sons, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, after all of that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Okay? Now to recap a little bit. We have a three-year famine that's come. Three-year Famine. And what God is doing is He is breaking the will of the stiff-necked people, His firstborn, the nation of Israel. He does that again when? He does that in the tribulation. The purpose of the tribulation is to turn the will of the stiff-necked people, the nation of Israel, towards Christ. To understand that Christ is really the I Am. Christ is God, God, Messiah, King of Israel. To break their will. And then also to end the wickedness of the wicked ones and worldwide revival. Now he's brought this three year famine because Saul and his bloodthirsty sons tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, kill every one of them, drive them out of the land, none of them live. And God can't let them do it. And he can't let them do it and get away with it. He has to take a stand here. What's the obvious questions? What is so bad about killing Gibeonites? People who are killed and slaughtered all over the world by other people. But you can't kill Gibeonites or God will come. He won't let Israel kill the Gibeonites. So what's so special about the Gibeonites? Why does he have to stand here? Why interfere here? And then why did Saul plot and to consume the Gibeonites? Why did Saul try to destroy them and kill every one of them? What was Saul thinking and then, why does God say, you've got to do what we just read? You've got to give the Gibeonites seven men, descendants of Saul. They're going to hang them. And then Rizpah's got to go out there. And then we've got to gather the bones. Then we've got to bury the bones with Saul. Why did God demand this process in order to atone for the death of all those Gibeonites? And by the way, how many Gibeonites died? How many did Saul kill? We'll get to that in a minute. Almost wiped them completely out. So obviously, the reason Saul, his zeal. See, Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. That's an important verse in this. Saul had zeal for Israel. That's a mistake. What should he have zeal for? He should have zeal for God. Why does he have zeal for Israel and what does that mean? But obviously, the reason Saul, in his zeal to kill the Gibeonites, and God's response to what Saul did, those are intimately connected. They are directly related. That's cause and effect. Saul's actions require. Notice how I'm saying that with a little quotations, because it's inside of time and God's outside of time. So it's not really a response in that sense, but it still nonetheless works for us. God's action, or I'm sorry, Saul's actions requires God's specific response. He will respond this exact way. Every time you kill a Gibeonite, this is what he's going to do. So, it's up for us to determine why and how they're related and why they connect so well. Let me rephrase it somewhat. Maybe it'll work for you this way. I'm going to put it into geometry logic, if you will. Math. If then. That might be helpful. I'm looking at your faces. If you kill Gibeonites, if you kill Gibeonites because you want to win the approval of the religious leadership of Israel, zeal. If you're killing Gibeonites because you're trying to improve your standing with the Pharisaical, if you will, at that time, with the religious leadership of Israel, that's why you're killing them. So, what's the obvious question? Why does the nation of Israel want the Gibeonites dead? Exterminated. If you're doing it for that, then God is going to intervene. God will respond. And He's going to hit you with a three-year famine that can only be ended. The only way you end that three-year famine... The only way your prayers will be heard again if you're Israel is you've got to hang seven descendants of Saul. They have to be executed. The body's left for months, then gathered and buried. And after that, after all of that, then God will hear your prayers again, and He will restore Israel. He will bring rain from heaven. He will restore the land to life. And does that make sense to you? Do you see what I'm building on? If you kill Gibeonites... You're no longer heard. And the only way you get heard is to go through this process. Hang seven. Fight off the beasts. Don't let the bones get taken. Bury the bones. Then God will hear your prayers. Restore the land to life. The judgment of the famine will end. Now, as many of you have noticed, there are forbiddens that seem to be violated here in all of this. And you've talked to me about it, and that's very good of you to do. What I mean by forbiddens, and I kind of slightly touched on this in other lectures of this, but I don't remember where. Um, But obviously, when you see forbiddens and you think they're being violated, that's a big, important key that something is going on. And what I mean by forbiddens is this What are we doing? We're killing sons for what reason? We're executing hanging sons. Why? It looks like for what Saul did. It's not the case, I've covered that before. But it looks like one of the forbiddens is Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen. It is forbidden to condemn a son for the sins of the Father. It's also forbidden to kill a father for the sins of the son. So if you're killing a son because of something the father did, that is forbidden in Scripture. If you think that's what's happening here, then you have God uh, doing a forbidden. And that cannot be true, right? So what's your mistake? It's forbidden to leave a hanged body beyond sundown. That's Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-three. These hanged bodies were up for months. At least two months. So how is it that these forbiddens... Can be bypassed. It is forbidden to offer up human sacrifices, Leviticus 21 through 3. It is profane to do so. But it looks like the Gibeonites are offering up these seven men, and God is then passing over his judgment. It's forbidden to have human sacrifice, it's profane. God will set his face against those who human sacrifice, and he'll cut them off, he said in Leviticus. But people bring up these three forbiddens all the time and they say, look, they're killing the sons for the father. That's not right. You let them hang beyond sundown. That's not right. And it's a human sacrifice and that's not right. And it may seem that all three of these forbiddens have been violated in Second Samuel 21 to most people, but not to you. Because, you know, God could not do that. So if you think he did, then what's the problem? You was in a mistake. You own thin eyes. You have a problem. And it's common, by the way, to find critics of the Bible using 2 Samuel 21 as an example of contradiction or capriciousness. They always say, they always come to 2 Samuel 21, and they say, look at what God's doing. God demands that they hang seven innocent people. And, of course, that's not true. You can tell it's not true by bloodthirsty house. But they, they say that God wanted seven guys hung for what their father did. That's not fair. And they'll say to you that God of the Bible, specifically Second Samuel 21, is erratic, temperamental, unstable, inconstant. They will charge. Inconstant, by the way, does not mean incontinence, in case you were thinking that. It means... That he changes. He's not constant. Essentially, they accuse God of being evil here. Look at evil God. Look how capricious he is. He gets mad and he just does things that make no sense. Okay, let me say this as clear as I can again. God has no sin. God has no sin. If you ever put sin in God, if you ever make him capricious, if you ever make him temperamental or erratic or irrational or angry, if you read something in the Bible and you say, look at God, he's being silly, then something is wrong with you again. And you are hopelessly broken if you have him Throwing out his forbiddens, if you have him accepting a human sacrifice that is not himself. If you have him, uh, and that, by the way, is why he's against human sacrifice. That's why it's profane. Who can be a human sacrifice? None. Except who? Except himself. So are you trying to substitute a human being for the holy God? That's what's happening. That's why it's so profane to do so. Anyway, if you ever think that God is anything but pure good, perfect, pure good and holiness, then you are in great difficulty and you'll never understand what that particular passage is really trying to teach you. Start out by saying, God is good. I may not understand how He's good. I may not understand why this isn't a violation of one of his three forbiddens, but I know that he can't violate it. So let me try to figure it out, starting from the position that he didn't violate it. Now you'll have a chance. Now, usually, whenever you do 2 Samuel 21, everybody always brings up Numbers 25. And it's brought up as proof that God is demanding human sacrifice. So let's go back to Numbers 25. And we'll read them side by side. By the way, what would I expect to have happen If when I hear that somebody says to me, well, he's doing the same thing in Numbers 25 that he's doing in 2 Samuel 21. What should I immediately think when when I hear that? Cool. If he's doing the same thing in Numbers 25 that he's doing in 2 Samuel 21, that's great news for me, especially if I don't understand 2 Samuel 21. What do I get to do now? I get to go to Numbers 25, and I get to do what? I get to put them side by side. Yay! I can take Numbers 25 and figure out Second Samuel 21 and the same thing backwards, right? So let's read Numbers 25. What's happening here? Well, let's find out. Now, Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. He said, do not intermarry with the pagans. Now, the Moabs are interesting. They're descendants of Lot, right? Israel's the descendants of Abraham. Now, Israel remained in Acacia Grove. By the way, Ruth was a Moabite and she's in the Messianic line. Now, Israel remained in Acacia, just for your own sake. Now, Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices. Oh, what kind of sacrifices do you think they invited the people to? They were horribly pagan at this time. So, the people of Israel went to watch sacrifices. What do they sacrifice? Babies. That's right. Who said that? Very good. They said they're sacrificing children. God hates that, by the way. It's one of the great wickednesses of this country. And sooner or later, we're going to get clobbered for it. It is a horrible, indefensible thing this country is doing. Sacrificing babies for what? Money. God help you you're in that business run they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods so israel was joined to baal at peor by the way i always want to know what they ate and the anger of the lord was aroused against israel what makes the god what makes god angry he tells you, by the way, in the Bible. And his anger is not the same as our anger. But it is nonetheless righteous and holy and frightening if you are in the face of it. Then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders. So do you see why this is always brought up? When you talk about Second Samuel? And hang the leaders of the people. Hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. There you go again, right? I have the anger of the Lord in both places. i got to turn it away. He is asking for the offenders of this horrific crime that is described this way. The people to the sacrifices, the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Horrific crime there. God said, hang the offenders. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal at Peor. In other words, they were joined to Baal. How were they joined by to Baal? What did they eat? What kind of communion service was that? And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren, a Midianite woman, in the sight of Moses. How smart is this guy? He's bringing a Midianite woman right into the trial. Right when God and Moses are saying who to hang and who to kill, he brings a Midianite woman in and says, hey, that's what I'm doing. Now, he is either very foolish or he is very powerful. You pick. And indeed, uh, now, uh, children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, saw the man come in. With the Midianite woman. He rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous. With my zeal among them, so I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Do you see the contrast between that and Saul, who tried to consume the Gideonites in his zeal? Gideonites. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Okay? Now, again, we have people... Of Israel, who were committing this great sin, this great apostasy that has human sacrifice in it, and who knows what else we can only begin to speculate, but it was profoundly evil and profoundly uh, wicked, and God had to intervene, great adultery, and God said, "Hang the offenders before the Lord in order to turn away judgment." Is this the same as second Samuel 21? If it is, what's the obvious question? Exactly. How is it that Saul killing the Gibeonites is equivalent to what's happening here in Numbers 25? Saul killing the Gibeonites and what was happening here? The adultery, the sacrifices, the bowing down to the God, the eating, that's the same as the Gibeonites. And I hope you notice the elements that are the same. The plague and the famine. The leaders of the people hang. The consuming. The zeal for God versus the zeal for Israel. The atonement. And certainly Numbers 25. I will agree with the critics, that, but they don't understand it. It's a blessing that it's the same. It must be attached to 2 Samuel 21. I've got to look at all of these people now and figure it all out. I have Moses and David and Phineas and the Gibeonites and Rizpah and the man who came in in front of Moses. I have Saul, I have leaders, I have sons. How does it all fit together? Okay? How do you do it? Well, first, the forbiddens are a great clue. By comparing Numbers 25, it should be obvious that the people hanged in Numbers 25 have committed a great blasphemy. They lead the nation of Israel into an adulterous apostasy. So I asked the obvious question Are the ones hanged here and the ones hanged in 2 Samuel 21 both guilty of the same offense? And if so, what is the great apostasy in 2 Samuel 21? It is not human sacrifice, but instead it's execution for intentional. Let me put it this way. They're doing what they're doing in front of God, before the face of God, in the face of God, if you will. In your face, for lack of a better expression, it is the remorseless killing of the Gibeonites that is happening just exactly. It corresponds to the human sacrifices and the eating and the bowing down to Baal. So the remorseless killing of the Gibeonites by Saul in his zeal for Israel as opposed to Phinehas in his zeal for God, the relationship exists. Somehow, the human sacrifices and the eating and the bowing down is the same as the killing of the Gibeonites. And the hanging of those those guilty, the offenders, is necessary. Now... Why were the bodies not cut down by sundown? Again, I covered the sins of the father going back to Second Samuel. Back to Second Samuel we go. I covered the sins of the father issue. These were bloodthirsty sons, so called by God himself. Second 2 Samuel 21.1. These are not innocent men uh, who were killed. I know some commentators say so, but he, God would not have called them a bloodthirsty house. He does not hang innocent men for the father. That's uh, forbidden. He's hanging guilty men for uh, committing a remorseless, in his face, apostasy killing of the Gibeonites. That's equivalent to human sacrifices. And bowing down to Baal. And obviously, the fact that he didn't cut the bodies down is a valuable clue here. And so we've got to back up a little bit to figure this out. Now, I want you to ask the most obvious of all the obvious questions. What do we got? We got a famine. David waits three years. He doesn't want to get involved. Why not? How many people are dying? Thousands are dying. He doesn't want to get involved. He waits three years. How many people die before he finally says, why is there a famine? What do I think? I think David knows why there's a famine. Why is he not doing anything? Why is he letting people die all alongside? Why did David wait three years before he asked God what was wrong? What great sin had been committed by Israel? Why did David not ask God what should be done immediately? And then the other thing. Once he found out, when God said, listen, the reason we have a famine is because of a great apostasy, Saul killed the Gibeonites. What did he do next? He should have asked, You would think he would have asked, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Does he do that? No. He goes to the Gibeonites to ask the Gibeonites what they think should be done. Does that make sense to you? Why did David not ask God what should be done once David knew that this involved the plot to exterminate the Gibeonites? In other words, why did David ask the Gibeonites? Why ask the Gibeonites what the atonement price would have to be? He thought it was better to ask the Gibeonites than to ask God. Why did he do that? Now, notice what the Gibeonites, and here is the most obvious of all the obvious questions. Notice the Gibeonites cannot be bought. They said, we won't have silver or gold. Don't try silver or gold on us. What does that make you think? David offered it. No. Then they say this amazing thing. Nor shall you, David, kill any man in Israel. That's the key. Because what are we talking about here? We're talking about Leviticus 24:17 through 22 and Exodus 21, 23 through 25. What's that? And when David came to them and said, how about gold and silver? They said, no gold, no silver. Oh, no. I can't buy them. We have a big problem now. And then they say, you don't kill anybody for us. See, because their right is lex talanus. Eye for eye, life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's their right. How many Gibeonites have died? David knew his lex talanus. Certainly all of Israel shuddered when they heard That God has sent a famine because of the consuming of the Gibeonites. Because what comes next? We have to make it right. How do we make it right? Life for life. Life for life. See, I submit that David knew this was coming. I submit that when the famine started, started, the leadership, they didn't want to ask God... They began to consider what had been done to cause it. And again, how many Gibeonites had been killed? Cause I gotta know. Why do I have to know? I gotta have a count. David goes to the Gibeonites. What's he expecting? A count. Why? Life for life. I got so many dead gibeonites. How many, what do I got to have now? I got to have dead israelites. Life for life. How many israelites would David have to execute? And when he went to the gibeonites, he fully expected, so did the entire nation of Israel, you're going to have to kill all these people to make this right. Thousands and thousands of Gibeonites were dead. And so thousands and thousands of Israelites deserved to die. Lex Talianus. And everybody knows it here. The Gibeonites know it. And the Jews know it. And David knows it. Everybody knows it. But the Gibeonites said, you, David, will kill no one. You won't kill any of them. Imagine that. Imagine what kind of relief just went up in the nation of Israel. Instead, they say to David, we will hang seven. How many should have been killed? Thousands. We will instead hang seven. The atonement? Of the slaughter of the Gibeonites, the wickedness of this atrocity, this blasphemy, the price will be paid by just seven men. There will not be life for life. Only seven men will be hanged. And the Gibeonites will do it. They're going to hang them. Why didn't they trust the priesthood to hang them? The priesthood was involved in the slaughter of the Gibeonites. See zeal for Israel. The Gibeonites will do it. The priesthood is corrupt and perverse. The Gibeonites will place before God seven hanged men. And then Rizpah will fight off the birds and the beasts. Then David will gather the bones of Saul and Jonathan, place them with the bones of the seven hanged, and bury them. And then the price will have been paid. That will have paid the price for slaughtering thousands of Gibeonites. The atonement will be complete. God's judgment now, His anger will turn away. And the blessing restored, Israel saved. That's the deal. Do you take the deal? Imagine you're in the Israelite voting block. David's going to go to the Gibeonites. Okay, David's going to go. What are the Gibeonites going to ask for? Life for life. We've killed, who knows, 100,000 of them. They're going to come back, and we're going to have to lose 100,000 of us. Life for life. David comes back and says, they offered us seven men. We hang seven. We deliver seven to them and they hang them. How many of you want the deal? Not good to be one of the seven, is it? You just got outvoted in the, even with voter fraud, it would be 250,000 to seven. The Gibeonites will place before God seven hanged men. Rizpah will fight off the birds and the beasts. David will gather the bones of Saul and Jonathan. I'm repeating this because it's important. He'll place the bones together and bury them. And that's the end of it. That is a great deal. A fantastic deal. The Gibeonites give them that deal. What's the obvious question? why they do that? Their families have been massacred, their friends have been massacred. And that's their deal. Give us seven descendants of Saul. Looks like a forbidden, but it's not. Give us seven. Looks like a human sacrifice, but it's not. Now let me let me repeat it again. We gotta hang seven. We gotta fight off the birds and beasts. We gotta gather the bones, we've gotta bury them. That must be something. What is that? That pays the price. That averts God's judgment. That turns His anger. That saves the nation of Israel. What is it? What is that? I'll repeat it again. Hang seven. Fight off the birds. Gather the bones. Bury them. What is it? What turns away God's judgment? What turns away His anger? What saves you? What's a great deal? See, it's obviously a picture of Christ, isn't it? It's got to be the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. The price will have been paid. The atonement is complete. God's judgment ended. Blessing restored. Obviously, the Gibeonites presented before the Lord God. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. His death, his burial, hidden in this actual, literal, historical incident. Again, let me ask this again. How did the Gibeonites know this? How did they know? By the way, why did they stay in Israel? Why did they save Israel? We covered this a couple weeks ago. Why did they not let God kill off Israel? By the way, this is just like Moses, isn't it? Moses stood in front of God and said, blot me out. And that, by the way, is a picture of who? It is a the- a, theotic, a dramatic theodicy. Same thing going on here. This is a dramatic theodicy. Who is in the picture of Christ? Why did they stay in Israel? Because they love Israel and they love Gentiles. They know that the salvation of the world comes through Israel. They got that. They're not going to let Israel. They're not going to put themselves in front of God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. They wouldn't even dare do it. Why did they refuse their right to life for life? Why did they stay in Israel? Why did they only take seven hanged? All of those are what? All of those are the same question. Same question. Same answer. Okay. It's a good place to stop. I didn't finish it. What did I leave out? How is it that these things are a type of Christ? And what is Rizpah doing? We'll finish that next week and then we'll move to Romans. Let's rise and be dismissed.